Good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing? Good, good. Merry Christmas. Uh, I'm excited about this time of year. It's good to have good to have you guys here this morning. My name is Jared Huntley. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and uh, we are uh, in a series on Advent. And so this is uh, the fourth week of our Advent series. And so uh, this morning uh, we're going to be in John chapter one, verse twenty-nine. That's going to be the text. John chapter one, verse twenty-nine. Um, it's going to be on the screen behind me, and we're just going to be do one verse this morning. So we're doing something a little bit different uh, today. Uh, we're going to use John chapter 1, verse 29 as our jumping off point, but this is going to be more of a thematic sermon, because um, we've been, in our, throughout our Advent series, we've been asking the question, who is Je- or answering the question, who is Jesus? So uh, during Christmas, we celebrate the arrival, the coming of Jesus, and so we've been answering this question, who, who is this Jesus, and why do we celebrate his coming? Why is it such a big deal? And so in week one, we talked about how Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And then uh, in the second week, we talked about how Jesus is the King of Kings. And then last week, uh, Thomas shared with us from John chapter 1 how Jesus is the Word of God, that Jesus is fully God and He is fully man. And today, we are going to see that Jesus is the Lamb of God. So uh, if you've got your Bibles, uh, you can look now at John chapter 1, verse 29. This is the Word of God. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let me pray. God, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for each and every person here. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together and to worship you. Lord, There is so much packed into that one verse that we just read. God, um, I pray that you would help us all to see just what it means that, Jesus, you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. May we leave here this morning having been profoundly changed by that reality. God, I, I pray that if there's any person here this morning that doesn't know you, that has not had their sins taken away, that has not trusted in Jesus, that today they would see, Jesus, that you truly are the way to salvation, that you truly do want to take away their sins, that if they will trust in you, that today they can be forgiven and they can be saved. And I pray that for those in this room who are already believers this morning, who are already followers of Jesus, that we would be amazed at your love and your mercy and your wisdom and your holiness, God, just the the glory that is seen at the cross. Lord, I I pray that, um, that we would meet with you this morning. Please help me as I preach, Lord. Um, apart from you, I can do nothing. I can't change anybody in here. None of my opinions are going to help somebody's life. That's not why I'm here. I'm here to declare the Word of God. It is your Word that changes hearts, oh God. So Lord, I pray that you would right now fill me with your Spirit and that you would help every single one of us, God, to humble ourselves before you and to listen to what you have to say to us this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so that verse that I just read, uh, those were the words of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist 
came on the scene and he came to uh, announce the arrival of the Messiah. And the first words out of his mouth when he first sees Jesus is he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This week I was driving uh, down a street and I drove by a church and and I don't even remember what church it was, um, but I was driving by a church and they have a a big cross in front of the church and right at the foot of the cross there was a nativity scene. And and I was just thinking about that after I drove by and um, when you really think about that imagery it's, it's kind of striking. It's, there's a symbol of death uh, right there at the scene of Jesus' birth. And I thought about how profound of a truth that that picture really communicates. That from the very beginning, from, from the very time that Jesus came into the earth, the Son of God was born, the cross loomed over His birth. Because that's why He came. Uh, in Luke chapter 2, verse 34 Um, Eight days after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph took him to Jerusalem and they took him to be dedicated uh, at the temple. And uh, a man named Simeon, uh, who was uh, a man of God who had been waiting for the Messiah to come, and God had revealed to him that Jesus was the Messiah, and he said this to Mary. He said, this child is destined for the rise and fall of many and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the hearts from many may be revealed. So right from the very beginning of Jesus' life, Mary, his mother, was told, a sword will pierce through your heart, meaning you will have sorrow in the coming days for what's going to happen to your son. This is all just pointing us to the fact that the reason the Son of God came into the world was to die on the cross for sinners. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, He said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. In John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus, he, He's just arrived in Jerusalem. He knows He's days away from the cross. He knows that's why He's come to Jerusalem. And He says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus knew exactly why he had come into the earth. From the very beginning of time, from before time even began, the Father and the Son had purposed that Jesus was going to come and give his life as a ransom for many to reconcile people from every tribe and tongue and nation back to God. But what I want to do with our time today is I want us to look at why it matters to all of us that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And specifically, I want to answer the question, why did Jesus have to die? Why do we need a substitute to die in our place? I mean, are all sins really deserving of death? Like, like doesn't that seem a bit like overkill? Is that really necessary? Uh, The main point of today's sermon, if I could summarize it in a sentence, is Jesus is the Lamb of God who was born to die in your place so that you could live. Jesus is the Lamb of God who was born to die in your place so that you could truly live. So the aim of, of my message this morning is that you would be awestruck at the beauty of the Lamb. 
today, that I, I want you to be so amazed that the Son of God died on the cross for your sins, that you overflow with a wealth of joy that cannot be contained around your family this Christmas. That's what I desire for each and every one of you here this morning. And, you know, as I we often we usually don't think about the cross at Christmas time. Usually at Christmas time we're thinking about the nativity scene, we're thinking about the birth of Jesus. But the reason that we're honing in on this and focusing in on this this morning is like I said, the reason Jesus was born <laughs> was to go to the cross. So it's imperative that we understand that that we understand what it means for Jesus to be the lamb of God. So let's go ahead and jump in. If you, there are uh, outlines uh, on your seats, and so uh, if you want, you can pick one of those up around you, and you can follow along. Uh, the first point on our outline is that Jesus is the Lamb who was slain. Jesus is the Lamb who was slain. Why did Jesus have to come and die? Why do we need a substitute? Let's start there. Uh, the fact that the first thing John says is, "Behold, the Lamb of God." Uh, should get our attention because John is summarizing Jesus' identity and his mission by doing that, by saying that when he first saw Jesus. And the first thing that would have come to the minds of the people around John who heard him say that in in, uh, Israel in the first century was a sacrifice. When they heard the words, Lamb of God, they would have immediately thought of a sacrifice. You see, God taught Israel from the very beginning as soon as he called them out of Exodus and he adopted them as his people, that he taught them that atonement was necessary for sin. You think about the Passover in the book of Exodus when uh, God is delivering Israel out of slavery to Egypt and God uh, tells the people of Israel that he wants each family to take a Passover lamb and they are to kill the lamb and they are to put some of the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and then when the angel comes he will pass over the judgment of God will pass over that home because there's been a substitute the lamb has been slain as a substitute in their place. And then we get into the book of Leviticus. And God, uh, so that he can dwell in the midst of sinful people as a holy God, he institutes a priesthood and a sacrificial system. So there's a priesthood. The Levites uh, you know, are, are in the tabernacle and the people and God provides a sacrificial system so that people can come and they can bring sacrifices and those sacrifices can die in their place so that God could dwell among them. But the blood of animals was only a temporary solution. That was never meant, nor could it actually pay the sin debt that they owed for their sin. And the reason is because Israel and we have sinned against an infinitely holy God, which means we owe an infinite debt, which means that only an infinite payment could ever settle the account, could ever settle the debt that we owe to God. There's a, there's a tension throughout the Bible, throughout the story of Scripture when you read it, between the justice of God and the love of God. There's a, a passage, maybe you've heard this passage before, it's a fairly well-known passage that I think presents this tension really well. It's Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. This is when God, uh, Moses has called out to God and asked him, please show me your glory. And God uh, reveals himself to Moses. And this is what 
God says to Moses in Exodus 34. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So in that passage, we, we see clearly the love of God. God is abounding in steadfast love and mercy. He's infinitely gracious. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And yet, in verse 7, we see that He will by no means clear the guilty. That's the often overlooked part of that passage. God is holy. He is passionately zealous for His own glory. And He must punish sin. So you see the dilemma we have here? God is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving sin. And yet, God is holy and just, and He is not going to overlook sin. So how can God possibly be loving and forgiving towards sinful people? How can He just turn the other way and act as if we have not sinned? If He's a just God, then He must punish sin. So how could He possibly be merciful? This is the tension that is throughout the Old Testament. And it's the tension that Jesus Christ was sent into the world to be born as a baby to solve. It's why Jesus came. The substitutionary death of Jesus Christ satisfies both the justice of God and the love of God to the fullest extent. The substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross satisfies both the love of God and the justice of God to the fullest extent. This is a doctrine called substitutionary atonement. Um, Substitutionary atonement is when an innocent party takes on and pays the debt of the guilty party to reconcile a broken relationship. It's when an innocent party pays the debt of the guilty party to reconcile a broken relationship. Atonement fixes whatever is coming between the two parties. When there's a broken relationship, usually there's something between the two parties. And so atonement is what solves that tension. It's what fixes what is broken. And what's broken between our relationship with God, what's coming between us and God is our own sin. And so that's what atonement deals with. So let's look at, I want, to, I want to show you specifically how substitutionary atonement satisfies the justice of God and the love of God. And I want to do that by answering a couple of objections that people commonly have to substitutionary atonement. Because as amazing as this news sounds, believe it or not, there are uh, oftentimes people uh, don't like substitutionary atonement and they have objections to it. So I want to try to answer those objections. The first one uh, I think that comes up for people is, is our sin really deserving of death? Like, do I really need a substitute? I, I, I don't think I've been that bad. Like, I know I'm not perfect. And You know, I know I've done things I probably shouldn't have, but I'm not an axe murderer, okay? So I don't really think that I deserve death. I mean, I I want you to kind of sit with this question for a second. If I were to ask you, do you deserve the wrath of God forever? What would you say? Think about that. 
If your answer is no, uh, again, like I, I don't think I'm perfect, but I don't think I deserve the wrath of God forever, then I want you to, let, let me just ask you to consider a few things. First thing I want you to consider is this. Righteousness, which is, which is a word that just means we are right and pure before God. We have no guilt. We, have, we, can, we can stand in his presence completely innocent and unashamed. Okay? Righteousness is pass-fail. We are not graded on a scale when it comes to righteousness. You, you, you don't, whether you get a 50 on your exam or a 5, an F is an F, and all of us have received an F in being righteous. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. Every single person throughout history except for Jesus Christ. He's the only one who was truly righteous. And he went to the cross to take our sin upon himself in our place. That's atonement. Are some sins more grievous than others? Yes. There is this myth out there that, that well, all sins are the same. That's not true. Try telling that to a rape victim. Not all sins are the same. There are sins that are much more grievous and much more wicked than others. But again, like I said, whether you receive a 5 or a 50 on the exam, an F is an F. And so one sin will cause us to fall short of the glory of God. One sin causes us to be condemned before a holy God. And that leads me into my, my second thing I want you to consider. If, if you... Um, are not sure that your sin really deserves death, I also want you to consider that God is holy. He's infinitely holy. His perfections are indescribable. And any offense against an infinitely holy being deserves an infinite punishment. If you slap a dog, you might get bit. If you slap a police officer, you're going to go to jail. If you slap a king... You may lose your hand or maybe even your life. But if you dishonor God, God is infinitely more glorious than a king. Do you see the point of that illustration? In every single instance, the action and the attitude were the same. There's anger and there's the physical action of assaulting another being or another person. But the punishment increased each time. Why? What was the difference? It's because of the glory and the importance of the one being sinned against. And if we sin against an infinitely holy God, then it demands an infinite punishment and response. The third thing I want to point out to you is that you reap what you sow. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death. What does that word wage, wages mean? Wages is it's something we earn, right? If, if you go to work you know, throughout the week and you work your 9 to 5 and you get your 40 hours, you receive your wages, which is your paycheck at the end of the week. And Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says that the wages, what we have earned for our sin, is death. The wages of sin is death. You're getting, in other words, what you worked for, what you asked for. You are receiving momentary pleasure, but it's at the cost of your soul. You have accepted what temptation has offered, and the cost is your life. 
So sin is not merely something that is passed down to us from Adam. It's true that we're born with a sinful nature, but it is a transaction that every single one of us has chosen to make. We have chosen to say, I want this pleasure, or I want this idol, or I want this temptation, and I will pay the price of my soul. Whether we believe it or not, we may have been deceived into it by the enemy, but we have made that transaction, every single one of us. You know, another common objection to substitutionary atonement is, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll admit that, you know, I could see why, you know, sin deserves death, but why can't God just forgive sins? Why can't He just, you know, be merciful and just kind of look the other way? Uh, there's a German poet named Heinrich Hein, uh, and he's rumored to have said on his deathbed uh, when he was asked uh, if, if he was nervous about dying and going to meet God, he said, of course God will forgive me. That's his job. And, you know, it's kind of a great summary of the world's general attitude, at least in the West, that God owes us forgiveness and he owes us salvation. But God cannot just forgive sin and let bygones be bygones. He can't just say, sure, no big deal. Because that would then he would violate his own moral character. He would no longer be just if he did that. Most Americans believe that God is love and that his love is greater than his justice and that his love is going to cancel out and like overcome God's justice in the end. But this isn't possible because then God would no longer be just. To simply disregard his justice, he would be, like I said, violating his own moral character. And when you really think about it, we don't even, we wouldn't even accept this for ourselves. If somebody comes and rear ends your vehicle, right, and they cause significant damage to your car, like you want to be compensated for that, right? Like, I mean, yes, you might, you know, you, you're, you're probably not going to want to hold a grudge against that person for the rest of their life and something like that, but you're going to at least expect to be compensated for that. You, you, you would not accept me coming and telling you, you know what, you just need to forgive and you just need to let that go. You, just, you need to walk away and let it go. Like it's, you know, like, why are you being so judgmental? Why are you making them pay for this? Right? You'd be like, what? That's, you know, it's kind of crazy. So why do we expect that God's just going to kind of wave his hand at sin when we've, when we have offended him and we have dishonored him? Hebrews chapter nine, verse 22 says it clearly. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. God is holy and just, and He cannot simply look the other way. This is why Jesus had to come and die. For God to extend mercy to guilty sinners, the debt had to be paid. Jesus' death on the cross was not merely a poetic expression of the love of God. It was not just an example for us to emulate. His death wasn't a tragic expression of love like Leo DiCaprio drowning in the cold waters of the North Atlantic for Rose as you know he sinks down into the water and we think, wow, what a, what a romantic love. And I, I think a lot of times what Jesus did on the cross in popular culture gets viewed that way is he, almost like he was just another soldier who gave his life for his country. But that's not, Jesus did not just die to, to give us an example to emulate. His death actually enacted a transaction. He actually paid the debt for our sin on the cross. 
A debt was actually paid. Do you see how much greater this expression of love is than this ambiguous notion that God is like some aloof grandpa who lets you do whatever you want and just goes, oh, it's all right. You, you silly thing. You're always running around sinning, stuff like that. Come here, you. Like, that's not who God is. God's love is actually infinitely greater than that. This is a sacrificial love, a love that would send his one and only son to die on the cross for your sins. That's how God has demonstrated the depth of his love for us. Think about the implications of this for Christians. If you're a Christian in the room this morning, and, and think about what this could mean for you this morning. Maybe you're not a Christian, but today you can become one. You can place your faith in, in Jesus this morning. Think about the implications for this. This means that if you are in Christ, your debt is paid in full for all of your sins, past, present, and future. If you are in Christ, God will never hold a single one of your sins against you. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How is it that God could be just to forgive sins? How is it possible that that could be the right thing for Him to do to just, just forgive your sins? It's because your sins have already been paid for at the cross. So it would actually be unjust for God to condemn you of your sins if you're in Christ because then He'd be punishing twice for the same sin. And God is not going to punish the same sin twice. That would be unjust of Him to do. So you could not be in a more secure position if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Your debt is paid and God will not extract payment for it again. It's finished. Amen? Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. From eternity past, I think about this thought. From before you were even born, God saw you. He saw all of your sin, all of your shame, the things you've done in secret that nobody else knows about, the the shameful thoughts that you think, the words that you say under your breath. He saw every bit of it laid out like on a table. Your whole life, all your years spread before you. He saw yesterday's sin and tomorrow's sin, and yet He chose to send His Son Jesus to die for you, knowing all of that, knowing everything that you were going to do, knowing all the ways you were going to rebel against Him, all the ways you were going to defy Him, and He chose you. Why would God do that? Because God is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The fact that you are a Christian has nothing to do with you has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with how lovable we are or what we deserve. It has everything to do with the mercy and the grace of God. That's why you have been chosen and you are in Christ. God chose to erase all of that shame, all of that sin. So that means that if you don't read your Bible this week like you should or you snap at your in-laws or you indulge in lust, there's still no condemnation. That can 
uh, you know, if we're honest, sometimes that can even make us a little bit uncomfortable, can't it? I'll admit sometimes it can for me. Some people are quick to object here. But doesn't this just mean that people can do whatever they want? Like, like, how is that just? How is God just, you know, going to forgive sins? Like what? So we just have a license to sin as much as we want. We can go around and, and do whatever. And I've got to go to heaven free card. No, that's actually impossible. Because 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. You see, God does not just set us free from sin's penalty, but He sets us free from sin's power. He doesn't just set us free from sin's penalty, but He sets us free from sin's power over us. When we are born again, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we receive the Spirit of God. We're born again. We begin to be changed from the inside out. We no longer enjoy dishonoring God by valuing the things that God has made more than the Creator Himself. We have a growing desire to, to love God and to serve God and a growing hatred for sin and the things that dishonor God, the things that keep us from God. That's what begins to happen inside the heart of a Christian when they're born again. Sin is still heinous even after we're saved and we commit it. Because sin is what put Jesus on the cross. Someone, a lover of Jesus, is not going to enjoy participating in the things that put Him on the cross. So no, we cannot just continue to abound in sin so that grace may abound. But at the same time, we shouldn't fear judgment for sin if we're in Christ. Because like I told you, our judgment already happened at the cross. And you know, if all this weren't reason enough to rejoice this Christmas, I've actually got even more good news for you. Not only does Jesus free us from condemnation, but Jesus frees us from death. Because not only is Jesus the Lamb who was slain, but Jesus is the Lamb who reigns. Jesus is alive he reigns in heaven, and He is coming back again to raise to life all who have trusted in Him so that they can live with Him forever. Our great enemy, death, has been defeated by Jesus Christ. And Jesus is not just coming back to raise the dead to life. He's, act, he's also coming back to execute judgment on the earth. Revelation chapter 5 we actually read that earlier in our call to worship, and the Lamb of God appears again in the book of Revelation. And this time, He's seated on a throne, and He's breaking the seals that seal the scroll of God's judgment. That's what those seals uh, and the scroll represents. The, the, the scroll is the judgment of God on the earth. It's righteousness being done. It's, uh, it's those who've been mistreated. It's those who suffered at the hands of, of injustice, being vindicated, and being rescued. I'm just going to read you Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 to 13, and I want you to picture this scene in heaven. It says that when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Only the Lamb is worthy to open the scroll of God's judgment, and He will. Every wrong will be set right. Every tear will be accounted for. Every injustice will be undone upon Jesus' return. Every uh, bit of sin and death and suffering and pain upon the earth will be expelled when Jesus comes to make all things new. You know, maybe this Christmas it's tough for you to believe that God is good because you've endured mistreatment from others. Maybe you've questioned how a loving God could sit by and do nothing from your perception while you suffer. Well, the truth is, that God has done something. First, He came into the world and He has endured the same sufferings and the temptations that you have. We do not worship a God who is detached and disconnected from our experience here. He wrote Himself into our story. He left heaven and came to earth. And if anyone has suffered injustice, it is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who truly deserves glory and honor and power and wealth and and all of these things that we just saw in the book of Revelation. And what did Jesus receive? He received our condemnation in our place. He was rejected by men. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer at the hands of injustice. So if you have suffered unjustly at the hands of another, you have a companion in Jesus who knows your suffering. And not only that, but he's coming back again to make all things right. Just because God's not doing something in your timing doesn't mean he's not doing something. It may seem like it's taking a long time for Jesus to return, but with God, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. Advent is a season of rejoicing and anticipation. Rejoicing that the Lamb came to be slain for our sins and hopeful anticipation as we wait for the Lamb to return and establish His reign upon the earth. Now how should we respond to the Lamb who was slain and the Lamb who reigns? I think we should take a cue from John the Baptist. Remember our passage earlier? What did John do? He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So first, this Christmas season, we ought to look to the Lamb. We ought to look to the Lamb. Behold Him. See Him. Look at Him. 
Those of you who have not trusted in Jesus, the invitation to you today is to look to the Lamb in faith. Repent and believe the gospel and you will be saved. Jesus has already paid it all. You must simply respond to the invitation. There's no better way to celebrate this Christmas than with new resurrection life. What a Christmas would that be? What a gift to receive this Christmas season. Maybe you've been to church your whole life. I don't want you to ever take anything for granted. You may have been coming to church your whole life. Maybe you've been baptized before. Maybe you've walked the aisle. Maybe you've, you've gone to church. You'll even crack your Bible open every once in a while. But this morning, you're realizing for the first time, I don't know if I've ever really heard anything quite like this. I don't know if I've ever heard the gospel presented like this, where Jesus is the substitute for my sins, and the only way I can be saved is by placing my faith in Him. There's nothing I can do. There's no good works I can do. Going to heaven is going to have nothing to do with whether I've done more good than bad. I will fall short. I need a substitute. If that's you this morning, I don't care if you've been going to church your whole life. That will not save you. You must call upon the name of Jesus to be saved. I plead with you to do that this morning. Don't leave. The, don't let this moment pass you by. Don't leave this room without placing your faith in Jesus this Christmas season. Receive the free gift of salvation that God is offering to you. Don't rely on your works. Believers, for you, this Christmas, remember the main reason that Jesus came. Look to the Lamb. Delight in the Lamb. In light of the indescribable love with which God loves us and the indescribable hope we have, we ought to overflow with praise and generosity towards God this Christmas season. So let's emulate the angels and the elders in Revelation chapter 5 and let's pour out praise to the Lamb. Spend time with Jesus this holiday season. It is really easy to get caught up in the hustle and bustle. It's really to get easy to get caught up in the, the, the fun and the food and the family. And those are all good things. And I want you to enjoy those things this Christmas season. You should enjoy those things. But don't forget to spend time with Jesus this, this holiday season. Don't if, if there's any time of the year that we ought to especially spend some time meditating on Jesus' advent, it ought to be this time of year. So let me encourage you to do that. And that, that leads to my second point of application. We should look to the Lamb and we should point to the Lamb. John the Baptist did both. He called us to look to the Lamb, but he also pointed other people to the Lamb. Behold, look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Brothers and sisters, that is exactly what we should be doing this Christmas around our friends, and around our family, is calling them to look to the Lamb who was slain. If we're delighting in Jesus this Christmas, we won't be able to help but declare Him too. We need to be a herald, just like John the Baptist, pointing people to Him. So take the opportunity over the holidays to maybe to ask your family what they think Christmas is all about. There's probably a good chance that you're not going to hear something like, well, Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins, because people don't usually think about that when they think about Christmas. But what an opportunity for you to share with them, hey, do you know the real reason Jesus was born in the first place? He was born to die for you and for me. That's why Jesus was born. Let me encourage you to take the time to share that with your family or your friends or your coworkers this holiday season. 
Make sure you lift them up in prayer. If you've got family, if you're going to be traveling to go see family here in the next couple days, like prepare yourself for those, for spending that time by praying for them, praying that God will give you boldness, praying that God will give an opportunity. Pray for them by name that they'll be open to this message, to this good news when you get a chance to share it with them. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask the worship team to start making their way up front as we make our way towards uh, conclusion. But what passages like John chapter 1, verse 29 and others that point to the Lamb of God teach us about Christmas is that without Jesus' substitutionary death, His miraculous birth would not be good news. Jesus is the Lamb of God who was born to die in your place so that you could live. His substitutionary death fully satisfied the justice of God and the love of God. I love how 1 Peter 3.18 summarizes it. It says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. So I want us to respond this morning by worshiping and praising the Lamb, much like we saw there in Revelation chapter 5. So the worship team in a few moments is going to be leading us and singing a song of praise. But before we do that, I just want us to spend a little bit of time in prayer. And so I'm going to ask Kerry, uh, he's going to begin uh, playing, uh, and the worship team will begin playing. And what we're going to do is we're going to use uh, this passage in Romans chapter 5 as a, uh, as a prompt. And in this passage, around the throne of God, there were loud shouts of praise and worship. And I want us to lift up our voices in prayer using Revelation chapter 5 here. And so during this time, here's what you can do. If you want, you can just pray in your seat uh, on your own if you'd like. Or you can pray with the person sitting next to you if you'd like. You can pray uh, out loud. You can pray silently. Whatever it is that you feel most comfortable doing. And I'm just going to, we're going to put some prompts on the screen behind us, okay? And I'm going to lead us in, in some guided prayer over just a couple of specific topics, okay? And the first one, uh, Revelation chapter 5 Uh, Verse 9 says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. So what I want us to do is I want us to spend some time praising Jesus for the gospel, thanking him for forgiving us of our sins. So, Carrie, would you just start playing, brother? And then uh, we're, uh, I just want you right now to take some time in your seat to spend some time praising Jesus uh, for, sin, for dying on the cross for your sins. Verse 9 goes on. It says, Worthy are you to take the scroll, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. God has ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. So just take a few minutes and pray right now by name for someone that you know that doesn't know Jesus this Christmas. Maybe it's somebody you're going to see or Uh, You could also pray for a specific people group. Maybe there's a country that God brings to mind or there's a specific people group uh, that doesn't have a gospel witness that God brings to mind. Take this time now to pray for that person or that people group. Then lastly, get verse 12. It says that there were the voice of many angels, myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying, 
with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So let's just take a moment now to yield yourself to God. Offer up your very best to him. Your affections, your energy, your time, your money. Tell him how worthy he is and offer up yourself to him. Surrender yourself this morning to him. Jesus, you are worthy of all of the affections and praise of every single person in this room, of every single person on the planet. All things were created by you and through you and for you. And in you, all things hold together. Jesus, you created everything for your glory. God, though we have not glorified you as we ought, you have been so merciful to us. You have been so merciful in extending an opportunity for every person in this room to be forgiven of their sins, to be reconciled to their creator. God, I pray that nobody in here would pass up the opportunity to do that today. God, every single knee will bow and every tongue in heaven and under the earth will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord eventually. Lord, I pray that we would give you all the honor and glory and the praise from here on out for the rest of our lives. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. We're going to stand now and close out our time of worship. We're going to sing these words from this scene in the book of Revelation. We're going to sing, Worthy is the Lamb. So let's sing loudly. Let's lift up our voices with shouts of praise because He is worthy. Amen.